You're listening to Tech Versus Media with Richard Walpert. On today's episode of Tech Versus Media, we'll be speaking with Jarl Mohn, long storied career in radio, early executive at MTV responsible for the programming, the founder and creator of E! Entertainment Television, and most recently, the CEO and chairman of NPR, all on today's episode of Tech Versus Media. The following program is brought to you in living color. We have a big show for you tonight. But there's one more little thing. Today, Apple is... You've got mail. You know that sound means it's time for another episode of Tech versus Media. I'm your host, Richard Wolpert. I've been on both sides of technology and media for 37 years, founded four companies, president of Disney Online, early employee at Apple, over 100 investments. Today's guest is Jarl Mohn, a name you might not know, but you should know. An amazing career, such a great storyteller, such a great voice, much better than mine. Not just about his career, but his investing in gaming, how he got involved with Riot Games, where he sees art and NFTs going. And at the end of today's episode, you're all going to have some great advice for CEOs out there. So please listen to the full episode today. The thing we get started with, you always is what I call Rapid Fire 10. Okay. If you compare your time at MTV, E! Entertainment, Liberty, NPR, etc., which one was the most fun and why? Most fun would have to be MTV by far. I mean, it was just music has always been a passion. And to be there at that period of time was uh, it was exciting and it was always fun. Which of your investments has been the most fun, not jobs? It might be Riot Games. At this stage of your career, are you more passionate about art, philanthropy or business? It would definitely be art and philanthropy. Art, because that is definitely more passion. Philanthropy, because I think one is heart and one is head. Philanthropy, because I think it's the right thing to do. I agree. Which is better, long hikes or long bike rides? <laughs> They're both great. It depends. I, I mix them up. I think the bike rides have got a lot more energy. Got it. Mountain bike? Mountain bike. One of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is how the industries, music, entertainment, video, gaming, et cetera, have evolved. And if you look back at your time during the MTV years mm -hmm. and your time early, especially at E!, which had a more symbiotic relationship with the entertainment companies, the music companies in the case of MTV, broader than that, obviously, in the case of E!, which did you have a better relationship with the content owners that you needed to work with? I think... The relationship at MTV was much more symbiotic and it was much more important than it was at E. At E, the relationship was very important because of booking, but it was less to do with the studios, I was saying the films, sure. although they were great advertisers, than it was with the agencies and the managers to get to the talent. Because the real value there was the interview and the access to talent. If you could do anything tomorrow, anything at all, what would you do? I can't think of anything really exciting. I just, I love a long bike ride in the mountains. Which of your accomplishments of all of them are you most proud of? Well, you know, it probably is trite to say this, but I'm, I'm really proud of my, my family and my daughters. Not trite you know, at all. And really love some of the things we've done 
with philanthropy, getting involved with KPCC in Los Angeles and helping that organization grow. So I, I would say between public radio and art and NPR. Professionally. Yeah. Great. So I was a huge fan of MTV when it came out. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember it was the channel I watched. And for me, the thing I noticed about MTV that was transformational for me as a music lover was once I saw the video of the artist and a story around the song, I loved the song even more than just having listened to it on my CD player. Do you agree with how transformative that experience was for people at that time? And what today do they have that can do the same for my daughter who's 23? Yes. To the first part of the question, I think that's why it became such a big cultural phenomenon. I want my MTV. Yeah. And the first video played ever was Video Killed the Radio Star. Buggles. Now, this is the great trivia question. What's the second video? What was the second video? It's a female artist, big at the time. This mm -hmm. was not a hit of hers, a big hit. Mm -hmm. But it was Pat Benatar, You Better Run. You Better Run could have been a covert message to the music labels. It might have been. I'll have to ask Mob. And what do they have today? That was yes, the other question. Yes. I don't know. And I, it's, I'll give my plug. Okay. Tiny Desk on NPR. We're getting there. We're getting there. I did read, and tell me if this is true or not, Jarl, that you were instrumental in starting to bring reality to MTV. More long form than reality, and ultimately, like give led me an to, example of one of the early well, long form the, shows. The, the short version of this that will put your listeners to sleep. Sure, is that after Michael Jackson phenomenon, after Thriller, Thriller, which was, was amazing. just like the peak experience. Yep. As that record, after its long, long run, started to come down in terms of popularity and sales, MTV's ratings started to come down as well because people were tuning in for Thriller. We started realizing then and having a lot of discussions about, well, what do we do? How can we keep the channel exciting and interesting? And we had a lot of debates internally. And ultimately, so many of us at MTV were people that were from the radio business. Bob came from Radio Les Garland, John Sykes. Natural transition. The people in our ad sales group came from television. I see. And they came, many of them from the independent television, you know, they're really scrappy. And they said, we're getting into the technical stuff. Your sure. ratings are done by how, not just how many people are listening or watching, but how long sure. they listen or watch. Sure. And when you're giving people decisions, three-minute and four-minute decisions on television, they're going to make three- to four-minute decisions. Okay, I'm going to turn away now. Where traditional television, you're making a half-hour decision or an hour or an hour and a half, two hours in the case of a film. And the ad sales minutes. people said it's easier to sell against a half-hour or hour program. You're going to keep people program. listening longer. And right. so even though they weren't programming people at all, I was listening to them going, you know something? They're probably right. And then we started experimenting. And the first things we did were looking at music-oriented things so they fit. Sure. And so we would do, the first thing we did, we, we hired Kurt Loder from Rolling Stone. I magazine. remember him well. We put, you know, MTV News on, Music News on, and then we did The Week in Rock mm -hmm. with Kurt Loder. And it, it did reasonably well. It did better than music videos. So, we're, oh, okay, well, let's do another. We did rockumentaries. We did a half hour on Bon Jovi or an hour sure. on Bon Jovi. Sure. That did better. Okay. And we started adding things more and more related. One of the things we did was like, hey, why don't we do a an 80s version of American Bandstand? And we did Club MTV with downtown Julie Brown. Sure. Remember that? That was a monster. That did well. And slowly but surely, we added these things. And then it got to be, okay, what's, what's next? Mm. 
And I remember the most controversial one was, let's do a game show. And everybody, I mean, the marketing department was ready to kill me. Absolutely not. They said, all the research that our viewers don't want a game show. I said, well, why don't you ask them the question a different way? Why don't you ask if MTV were to do a game show, what would it look like? Great question. And it came back, oh, well, it should be really totally crazy. And and thus, remote control got created with Ken Ober sure. and Colin Quinn. And by the way, Adam Sandler came out of that. There was some Ben Stiller. So sure. many people, you know, young comedians on that show. And it was a monster. You go, how could a game show work on MTV? How is that even possible? And it did. It was what your audience wanted. And you they didn't research. know they wanted. You can't ask the question. What do you want that doesn't exist, doesn't yeah. work? Right. Yeah. Wasn't that sort of Steve Jobs thing? Right, right, right. You know, right. they yeah. don't know what they want. Right. Got it. I want to get on to some of your newer stuff. So if I look at your career post-radio, I kind of bookend the CEO jobs or the EVP jobs with MTV at the beginning and NPR mm-hmm. north the end. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite things, we talked about what do people have today to really feel more in touch with that artist. For free on YouTube is all the Tiny Desk concerts. And the artists that I know, I like their songs better because they talk a little bit about them. The format's great. It's three songs, I think, almost mm-hmm. always. Three. In the offices of NPR, mm-hmm. with only your staff invited. And I learn even about new artists that I didn't know. There's got to be, if not a hundred, hundreds of them now that you guys have done. How did that come about? How did your early experience at MTV help inform what it should be today? Well, I'm proud to say I had nothing to do with Tiny Desk. Well, I think you're a self-deprecating person, so I'm not willing to accept that. But Uh, I want to hear the story. No, it existed before I got there. The NPR Music Group has just done a remarkable job. It was a project no one was interested in. No one cared about. And they ever say, yeah, yeah, go ahead, do it. Put put it up online. Very low cost. Low cost. That was basically it. No money. And that's where the idea came from. What can we do for no money? And it was, well, let's just shoot it at the desk. If if that idea had come to me, I'd like to think I'd approve it, but I probably wouldn't. So you would have that. overproduced it maybe? Yeah, that you can't do that in a cubicle. That'll look stupid, you know. But there was no money and no one was paying attention and they just did it. And to me, it's a great story about creativity. Sure. And you have to let people run and try things. You know, I would like to say I was there at the time and I was the guy that didn't pay attention and didn't stop. It it, it predated me. But it's taken on a life of its own. And it's For a sure. remarkable, remarkable phenomenon. And expanding the NPR brand to demographics yeah. that probably were never familiar with it as no. a result. You know, that's one of the things that podcasting has done as well. NPR as a news organization has had to deal with the demographic issue that any news organization does. People tend not to become interested in the world around them until they're about 30. Okay. On average, NPR as a result of Tiny Desk and the podcasting has got a much more attractive brand, I think, to younger people than most news brands and more inviting and The podcast division has done a phenomenal job, not just attracting a younger audience, but also a more diverse audience with podcasts like Code Switch. I think those programs, you know, those those initiatives 
broadening the audience. Yeah. And what it does is when the light goes off, the switch goes off in someone's head. I'm kind of more interested now in the world around me. What we're seeing is people start gravitating to the network. I can tell you my daughter who turns 23 this Friday, happy birthday, Skylar, listens to NPR every morning on her Amazon Echo show. Wow. Was introduced to it by Tiny Desk. Fabulous. So there you go. Love it. Yep. When you're running NPR, which is a nonprofit, correct? Yep. Does that limit the podcasting that you want to do, the daily programming you want to do for Tiny Desk that you realize with the OMTV Raps was working so well? Now you see this thing at NPR called Tiny Desk that they do maybe once a week or every couple of weeks. Did you want to do more of that? But you can't because you've got this nonprofit situation. No, they generally do it about two tiny desks a week, sometimes more. There were some challenges just because it's a not-for-profit. We do compete as a not-for-profit in the commercial world. We compete, you know, for news with the New York Times. Does that make it easier because people think they're doing something good or harder because you don't have as much money? Makes it much harder. There are people that love working, many, most, I would say, that work at NPR do it because there's more freedom to do the kind of work they want to do. You can do a four-minute piece. That, in the world of cable, is long. Sure. In the world of NPR, it's an average. And if it's really a great piece, you can do eight minutes, or you can do a podcast for an hour. And so these are very incredibly creative, incredibly intelligent, incredibly committed and engaged people who really believe in this work and really want to do that. So many of them have made a personal sacrifice saying, I could make X at NBC. Sure. I'm going to make Y at NPR because I really believe in the mission of public service journalism. And it's important to them. Yeah. And based on what you said, they're probably over 30 at that point. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, And then, but we do have a lot of young people that have, have come in that are really committed to it, but that makes it much harder. And then when you have a success, Okay, something that's really breaks through. And there is we don't call it advertising in public radio. It's called sponsorship. Sure. Because you're not buying a number of impressions. But the challenge is when something becomes highly successful, like Tiny Desk, like Tiny Desk, then you you have limitations on what you can compensate. Because there are many people that feel very strongly that if you're a not for profit, the people that are working at not for profits shouldn't make over a certain amount of money. We would lose people all the time because in New York Times or NBC or someone would come along and offer them a lot more money. And so a certain percentage cycle through for that reason. And if it's a huge success, you know, it's a not-for-profit. You have to file what's called a 990 every year. Sure. And you have to list the top five highest paid people. You know, and a CEO, you're going to be on that list. That's sure. fine. But you compare what I make or my predecessor successors made compared to media, sure. commercial media. Uh, it's like a, a it's, fraction. It's a fraction. Sure. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Jarl's going to tell us about his experience in the booming gaming industry and where he sees it headed. We'll be right back. I often say on my show, I'm having discussions with the people that you know and the people that you should know. The same can be true of a law firm. One law firm you should know about, an LA-based law firm, is Stubbs Alderton Markleys. 
I've known Scott Alderton for almost 20 years, and I've used his firm for not only my personal work, but for HelloTech and other companies that I've been involved with. They specialize in technology and media, the topics that we discuss in the show. If you're looking for a law firm that will pay attention to you at a reasonable price, please reach out to Stubbs Alderton. You can send Scott an email. It's s.alderton at stubbsalderton.com. And if you need help spelling that email address, just go to the show notes for today's episode. There'll be a direct link you can click on to email Scott. I highly recommend Stubbs Alderton Markley's. Solar from Kurtco Media. NASC located the Athon two days ago. However, we have not established contact. What was that? I do not detect any abnormalities. The lights are getting brighter. Is the electricity overloading? Everything is nominal. What are the odds of survival for the Aethon crew? We won't speculate on those circumstances. I'm sure you can understand. Solar, a fully immersive sonic adventure with revolutionary sound from Dolby Atmos. Incoming message from Jamal. Accept, accept. Rich, it's coming into the airlock. Get away from the airlock. Starring Academy Award winner Helen Hunt. If we deviate from the plan even by an hour, we lose everything. Tony Award winner Alan Cumming. I'm simply not willing to risk the lives of any crew members for the sake of an experiment. Stephanie Beatrice. I'm going to save you, Jamal. And Jonathan Bangs. One problem at a time, friend. Solar. Shadows are darker this close to the sun. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. So you seem to have more than one, a few good investments in the gaming sector. So I'm curious your thoughts, given what you've witnessed at Riot Games and others. It seems to me like gaming is the new frontier for entertainment. Gaming, they talk about it being as big or bigger than theatrical movie. Esports is blowing up. I have a few investments there and just insane what's happening. Is now the time for gaming? It's really going to take off? Why now, in your opinion, has it really gotten to this level where it's reaching this mass, mass audience? What social things have happened or technological things have happened, in your opinion, that make gaming the new frontier in entertainment? My guess, and this is purely a guess, is that technology is there now. And the bandwidth is there now. The bandwidth, lack of latency, that type Fast of thing. Fast computers. And so many really smart, creative people are coming into the field that have great ideas. And I think that for any field makes things ready for a rapid growth. But I don't know, and I, I haven't studied it enough. I'm not conversant enough. I was just very, very lucky to have been approached by the guys at Riot. The things they wanted me for were not related to specifically gaming. It was more broad definition of creating a creative environment, running a creative business, hiring creative people, managing, leading, inspiring creative people, which I have a little experience in, but none in gaming. And even though I spent all that time there and with some other investments that we we share in common, sure, I'm not a gamer. I've never played. I've never played uh, League of Legends. I'm not a gamer. Sure. But with what you've seen, you've been at least a front row witness to what's happening. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Yeah. Do you think it has a lot more room to go? Oh, yeah, I do. For years. For, for, it is, I think it is a robust category. And the only limitation, and, and that's why I don't think it's a limitation at all, is the limitation of technology and creativity. It's too big. This is not a fad. 
And there's so many people that are coming up in college that have grown up with gaming that are passionate about gaming, and now it's a real business, and they can put their creative energy into it, right? And the other technologies, I can't even imagine where it's going to go. Some of the things we've talked offline about, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented augmented reality, reality, all of these things, how they're going to be laced into the gaming environments, I think it's going to be insane. That's awesome. So your career has been mostly on the entertainment side, MTV, E, but most of your investing that I've seen is on the tech side. Mm-hmm. I think roughly 60 investments. That's about right. So you've got to understand both, right? But how do you evaluate where to invest? You've done these 60 tech investments, right? I've done the same or more just because I make smaller bets than you do and a little bit more frequently. If you look at all your investments and you look at the ones that have been successful, what have you learned that you now use to decide when the next Riot game guys come to you and say, hey, Yarl, we want you because of your background? What criteria have you learned that helps you decide when to say yes or no? I've talked to a lot of my friends in venture like you about this. The conclusion I've come to about myself. Sure. Because there are many people that are quite articulate and have spent a lot more time thinking about this than I have, that I really enjoy their perspectives and reading blogs or I follow VC Twitter all the time and all the commentary that VCs have or angel investors have about their approach, many of which I think are really valuable and interesting. But when it comes down to the decision, I mean, because there's so many things, relationships are important, treating people properly, returning phone calls, you know, all the basics that I think, I don't care what the business is. If you're a used car dealer, you you should probably do. But the decision about when am I going to put the chips in the center of the table is it's really about the management team, number one. Sure. Number two, it's about the sector. How do I feel about the sector? And the third is how is the customer going to respond to this? Is it differentiated enough? Is it good enough to cut through the clutter because there's so much stuff out there. There's so many people doing so many things and it's really hard to break through. And so I've done a lot of due diligence early on in venture. I did tons and tons of due diligence on the investments I made. I have found, and this is just me, the more time I spent doing due diligence, the worse the investment was. The more of a flyer, "Ah, I like the idea, I like the people, you know. And I do have, as you and I have chatted before, I have a bias against things I really know. Let's talk about that for a second. Because I feel the same way. I have a saying, and this is important for all the young entrepreneurs out there to hear. I think it's an important lesson, not to be arrogant myself, for venture capitalists. I have learned, like for me, it's music, right? Technology related to music. I was involved with MusicNet and Real Networks and Real Player and Rhapsody and all that stuff. I say sometimes you say no, N-O, because you know K-N-O-W, right? The category I know best, I know all the problems. I know all the pitfalls. I know all the things they're going to run into. And I just, I'm often a quick no. Categories I don't know, as you were saying, more of a flyer. You have more of an open mind as a team here. Is the timing right? It's the product. We talked about technological advancements happening 10 years before consumer adoption. We have to consider that as well. You find the same thing for yourself in media? Sometimes Absolutely. You just... 100%. 100%. The worst thing you can do is come to me with a business I know something about. 
the, the chances a lot about especially yeah well assuming i do <laughs> I, I can poke holes in it like crazy people come to me all the time now with new stuff because of my npr stuff sure you know People want a different kind of news, and they, they're not getting the kind of news they want. I'm like, please. you know. I, I, and in some cases, I, I'll lose my patience because I just don't even want to get into a discussion to try to convince or at least express my point of view about what I think the shortcomings of this particular idea are. Which you just know innately right now at this point. Well, I think I do, but it makes it for a hard conversation because—and I, I tell people— you know, right out. I had an idea a couple of years ago. It was really funny. I chose not to pursue it, but I thought it was a big idea. I chose not to pursue it because it wasn't something I was particularly passionate about, but I saw a great opportunity. I love art. I love creativity. I don't think I'm a particular creative guy myself, but I, I recognize it in others and I value it in others. Sure. And there's a thing happening. I think this city that we live in here, Los, Los Angeles, Angeles, is, I think, the most exciting city for creativity on the planet. I don't think there's any place on the planet that has got more creative people. New as, York claims to have it. Well, they were, but they don't anymore. Okay, I agree with and you. And I, I feel very, and I'm ready to take them all on. Yes. So um, look, the motion picture business moved here in the 40s. First, the creative side of the business, then the business side of the business. Television business, creative side came in the 60s, business side came in the 70s. Record industry came, the creative side in the 60s, the business side in the 70s and 80s. Gaming kind of started here. Gaming started here. Yep. Art now, but this is really a, a phenomenal creative place. Yep. I want to talk about something that's super hot right now that I think you have probably a great insight for that I'm still confused about, NFTs. <laughs> NFT stands for non-fungible token. And they're basically, you can buy ownership of a piece of a digital something. Like the hottest one right now is NBA Topshop, where you can buy the ownership of a specific dunk that LeBron James did. I think more interesting is how it interacts with art. It's either do you own the digital version of a physical piece, or I think the thing that makes more sense is an artist that creates a digital piece that you own the rights to. So I'm not expecting you to be an expert on NFTs, but you've heard of them, I'm sure. You're of course. well-read on a daily basis. You know the art world a thousand times better than I do. Do you see NFTs and the art world combining in any way, or you think it's just a blip for now? I think there's probably something there for sports or unusual things where you can capture a moment and own it. I want to separate that from art. And, and, and I do think there might be something where an artist creates something digital that someone can own. But when I think about the way people experience art, and this is I'm speaking not as a business person. I'm not speaking as a digital person. I'm speaking just as a someone that appreciates art. Appreciation of the arts. If I have a sculpture or if I have a painting and I have it hanging in my house, I can see it all the time. I can appreciate it. And I think that is a big part of what collecting is about. I think it's a huge part of what going to museums is sure. about. I don't think NFTs provide that. I read something about you. I don't know if it's a quote. One of the things you <laughs> like most about the world of art and the world of venture capital is that it's a matter of believing in and supporting ideas. 
In the case of artists, it's people with creative ideas. With entrepreneurs, it's a business idea. You say you get exposed to new ideas and great thinkers, so you find artists and entrepreneurs very inspiring. Is that what you said? I said that's exactly right, and that's exactly how I feel. I really love that. And compare how you see artists and entrepreneurs as similar or different. The underlying theme, which you mentioned in that quote, is really at the heart of it. I find both entrepreneurs and artists, for me, inspiring because they have new ideas. And I love hearing about the ideas. I love seeing the ideas. I like experiencing the ideas. And that's what I get a big kick out of. Even if I don't like the idea, even if it's not appealing to me and I don't want to invest in it, let's say, I find the conversations incredible. And with artists, one of the things that I love about art is there are artists that if there's something that I really respond negatively to, and this is not what happens with venture uh, or startups, sure. but I see a lot of art that I just, you know, the worst thing you can say is I'm indifferent. Eh, it's, you know, yeah, it's okay. It's, right. But sometimes I see things that I don't like at all, or I go, I just, it rubs me the wrong way, but I'll be thinking about it later. And I really think that's one of the reasons that art exists. It shouldn't just be the beautiful picture of the cow in the meadow. You know, they did all the research about, sure. well, what are the elements that would make a great painting? Oh, yeah, I'd like to have a cow in the middle of a, a field. <laughs> but when I find myself thinking about an artist, and there have been a handful of them, and art that really rubbed me the wrong way, or somebody that is really critically well-reviewed, the critics love it, or the institutions love it, and I just don't get it, then I become obsessed with it. Then I really want to, what am I missing here? What am I missing? What's the best advice you've ever given a CEO? I think the people that we surround ourselves with are the most important part of the equation. And we have to do everything we can to make them feel great, to make them feel inspired, to make them feel creative. The CEO and the team around them both. Everyone. Yes. Everyone. And the culture is wildly important. And treating people well is wildly important. And we don't always get it right. And so if I had a piece of advice, if I have shared it, it's how important culture is and how important treating people well is. I haven't always gotten that right, but sure. I've, that's what I've aspired to. And it's what you ask your CEOs and teams yes. to aspire to as well. Yes. Got it. So, tech versus media, convergence or clash, name of the show, which do you think it is? A convergence of the two or a clash? Convergence. With clash along the way? There's always clashes. You, you, you remember your college philosophy classes? You had, yeah. you had thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Yep. And that's what art is about. It's what science is about. It's, it's what everything is about. It is clash and it is convergence. Everything. Got it. What a great way to end the show. Jarl, thank you so much sure, for coming. Sure, thanks for having me. I've known Jarl for close to 20 years, but... Having heard some of those stories today about what was actually happening at MTV, how e-television was created, his time at NPR and Tiny Desk, something I love, really got me thinking, here are my final thoughts. The main thing I want people to get out of today is Jarl's probably one of the most successful business people I've ever known. 
his radio station career where he bought up numerous radio stations and sold them for a boatload of money. The early executive team at MTV, the founder of E! Entertainment Television, the CEO and then chairman of NPR. And whenever I asked him, did you do this or did you do that? He always deflected and said, well, I can't really take responsibility for that. There were people that worked for me and they actually came up with the idea and I just supported it. And this is something that we need more of. We is the the business universe in general. And we is especially some of you, I'm sorry if I'm targeting you out, young 20, 30s, early 40s, tech successful entrepreneurs, and even some my age. We need more humility. We need to give others credit for the participation that they had in our ideas, in our hard work, and in our companies. Jarl is so accomplished. I could go into all the things that he discussed, but the single most important thing I want people to take from today was his humility and his pride of ownership, but not control of ownership and not sole ownership and not taking credit for something he did not do, sharing it with others. I hope you appreciate that thought. I hope you live that a little bit each day. It'll make us all happier. It'll make people that work for you better. And I hope you stay tuned for next week's episode of Tech Versus Media. One of my favorite sayings is, show me you love me, don't tell me you love me. And what I mean by that is words are easy, but action is hard. And if you want to show true impact and intent, action is important. One of the firms I'm very proud to be associated with, a venture capital firm called A-Crew Capital, A-C-R-E-W Capital.com, was founded by five people, only one of which was a white male, which is extremely rare in the venture capital industry. They are extremely focused on backing female CEOs, people of color, transgender. They put their words into action. And if you're interested in working with a VC firm that's truly focused on diversity and shows it with their action, not just their words, I highly recommend A-Crew Capital. Again, that's A-C-R-E-W Capital.com. Bullhorn brings to podcasting what color brought to television. It makes podcasting a rich, immersive experience. With Bullhorn, you don't just listen to shows, you interact with them. Bullhorn lets content creators share live videos, chat with the audience and take questions, post polls, take call-ins, share images, and more. If you want to experience what podcasting can be and should be, Download the Bullhorn podcasting app today at bullhorn.fm. Stop listening. Start interacting. If you enjoyed today's episode, and especially if you learned something, please give us a rating, leave some comments, and subscribe. These podcasts would not be possible without the help of many people. I want to thank AJ Mosley, my producer, Lily Ramadi, my chief of staff, and Ness Savadoff-Smith, the audio engineer for today's episode. I'm Richard Walpert. I hope you listen next week.